Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest is uh, Jonathan Dodson. We're talking about his book, Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. Jonathan, why did you, again, the the title of the book was given before the pandemic, uh, but why do you refer Mm -hmm. to Our Good Crisis? Uh, it's a it's a double entendre. So there's two meanings: is the fact that there is a crisis of good. Uh, we look around us and we we see wake up to a crisis every day. You know, a Me Too crisis, a political crisis, environmental crisis. There is a there's a lack of goodness in the world, and yet it's a good crisis. In other words, the crisis is an opportunity for goodness, uh, yes. and particularly for those who follow Jesus, uh, who is the embodiment of pure goodness. Uh, so it's it's both a kind of, you know, an assessment of the world we're in and an invitation to change it through the, the goodness of Jesus. Let's talk about, uh, we've referred to it once or twice, righteousness. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they mm-hmm. shall be satisfied. And you write, uh, one of my underlines is, living a righteous life ushers in wholeness. It lines up with God issuing a host of virtues, such as humility, purity, mercy, love, and endurance. This is why each beatitude starts with the word blessed. The blessing that ensues from a life of righteousness is the result of living how our Creator intended us to live. He has designed us for flourishing, which happens when we align ourselves with His design. Righteousness is moral goodness that takes its cues from God. This righteousness isn't purely individualistic. It can't contain itself. It spills over into society, touching lives around us. So while righteousness is personally satisfying, it is also socially renewing. And just a little bit later, you write, we can't pick and choose the teachings of Christ we want to keep. Nor can we reduce Jesus to the poster child of our pet moralities or political persuasions. Rather, the collective weight of all of Jesus' teachings should drive us to Christ to find forgiveness and power to live moral lives that please God. Regardless of how unpopular they may be, we cannot do this alone. And you write that no one can perfectly fulfill this beatitude, much less the entire sermon on, on the mount. So how is it that we, sh- we should perdu- uh, pursue righteousness, especially if we can't do it alone? Uh, yeah, so in this chapter, I'm trying to contrast righteousness with values. Um, values are mushy. And righteousness is firm. Um, so <clears throat> we have values like transparency, uh, kindness. Uh, they're kind of subjective. Um, they're kind of mushy. So you, you might have a company that has those listed on its website, and yet um, they're doing very unethical things in their business practice. They're not kind to their employees, and they're not transparent about what's really going on. Um, we, we tend to gravitate to these kind of mushy values in this age rather than the kind of black and white righteousness that 
um, the, the Lord uh, calls us to. And uh, the, the, the problem with values is that they're so mushy that they become not only self-serving, but um, unhelpful to others. So in that example, you know, uh, transparent at what level? Well, as long as it's convenient for me. Uh, whereas honesty is tell the truth and tell it all the time. So you've got a value versus a biblical virtue, honesty versus mm-hmm. transparency. And you tell the truth, it might be hard to hear, but it's good for you. It's not self-serving. So um, as we think about living a righteous life um, and cultivating this moral goodness that comes from God, the scriptures teach us how to live a righteous life. And there's clear instruction on what is righteous and what is unrighteous. And, um, you know, it's very fashionable to, 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 to go the, the value direction. And I'll never forget we were at a men's retreat and um, there's a guy who had just come to Christ probably in the past year, I think it was. And he got up and he shared about living a life pursuing whatever he wanted. He didn't believe in the category of sin. He thought it was silly. He says, basically, there's just stuff that we like and stuff that we dislike, but there's no real thing such as sin. Um, He lived in an open marriage. Um, He pursued his career, money, and it all came crashing down because the values, the mushy values, they don't, they don't, we don't flourish in them. A marriage is designed for commitment, uh, commitment in mind, body, soul. You, you rupture that commitment, and it's not going to work. Um, and so he found out very, you know, devastatingly. And so he came to Christ. He repented, put his faith in Jesus, and he stood up in front of these men at this men's retreat, and he said, if you don't think morality is real, then come talk to me. Mm. I can tell you, I lived, I'm 55 year, years old. I lived 54 years thinking sin wasn't real, and I wrecked my entire life. Mm. <laughs> wow. You know, it was like a personal testimony for righteousness. Yes. Like he did it. He lived, the tra- he lived for himself, and it, and it blew up in his face. And so um, what we want is to flourish, but we're chasing our own self-made morality when God has handed us a morality in which we actually do find that we flourish. Some of the other points you make in, uh, in this particular um, part of the book is um, the fact that we've, we've created a moral vacuum, uh, that we need a moral norm to determine what is harmful and, and what is not, that all of us are prone to replace God with our own vision, our own vision of justice um, what does it mean then to say that we are we are meant to be righteous together? Mm. Yeah. So righteousness, holiness, godliness, true moral goodness is impossible to cultivate on your own. And the reason for that is if we just take these beatitudes, each of the word the word blessed in each of them has is plural. Um, so it, there's, a, there's a grammar to support it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's for multiple people. But blessed are the support for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of people. 
It's a kingdom of community. Now, you want to be humble, you want to be merciful, you want to be righteous, the one we're talking about. You need people. <laughs> you can, you right. can't be humble without people. Mm-hmm. You can't be meek uh, towards someone and, and defer to them and serve them and honor them and ask them questions. You can't be merciful uh, to, to forgive and to serve and to love others. Um without other people. And so righteousness is a community project. It's it's worked out in the push and pull and the friction and the formation of our relationships. And so the only way that we can truly uh, come into step with the design of moral flourishing and human flourishing is if we are doing it with other people. It, it, it's meant to spill out into our relationships, and it's in those relationships that we learn to forgive, uh, to serve, um, you know, to uh, make peace and conflict. These hallmarks of the Beatitudes, it just, you just can't do it on your own. Uh, it's, a, it's a community project. Whenever you get to uh, this point in your book, the Beatitude uh, on mercy, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive uh, mercy, uh, you... You indicate that you and others might be overwhelmed by the Beatitudes. Why is that? Why would we expect to be, are they asking too much of us? Why do you think we'd be overwhelmed? I, yes, they are asking too much <laughs> of us. I, they're impossible to live on your own. Uh, I, I can't. I can't get past the first one. Okay. Uh, poor in spirit. It's completely possible. And, and of course, we've looked at poor in spirit, how... It is produced not on your own, but it is produced before the face of God, quorum Deo. And so there is tremendous help for all the Beatitudes, but if you, if you look at them only for the, the moral guidance that they provide, you're done. <laughs> I mean, it's yes. just, yes. I cannot live this life. And of course, the hope of the gospel, and, and there is a gospel hope attached to each Beatitude, um, is that there is one who lived them flawlessly on our behalf, not only as a moral example, but also as the one who would complete our humanity, that would be the better Adam, and that would, in his death and resurrection, forgive us and confer upon us that glory, that welcome us into his own righteousness, um, as we dis- we discussed earlier. And so, yes, I mean, I, anytime I need a good humbling, I just turn to the <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Yes. And uh, it's so good for my soul. So it, it does give you that moral direction. Uh, but as I mentioned, each one is attached with a heavenly promise. Yours is the kingdom of God. You'll inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. There's these just kind of, you know, heavenly promises. There's a pitchfork, you know, be righteous, be merciful, moral pitchfork, if you will. And then there's this carrot, this heavenly carrot dangling for satisfaction, for peace. And we, the Lord just wants us to bite down on that and let it nourish us. And then the, it works, the virtues work themselves out as we hope in a God who has done this for us and is doing it in us. And very pointed, uh, right to the point. If we are recipients of divine mercy, not the judgment we deserve, how much more should we show mercy to to one another's? Uh, one another. Mm-hmm. 
And so you write, showing mercy isn't merely getting things done. It's expressing God's kindness to someone with a name. That makes it personal, doesn't it? It does. It does. And it's fashionable today to do merciful things and to pick out a cause, a just cause. And in my experience, sometimes that cause and that mercy is more self-serving than other-serving. It's kind of a notch in the belt. Mm-hmm. I'm part of this community. I'm part of this cause. And I wanted to reframe it and say, mercy has a face. You know, it, it, it's, the, it's the neighbor who's going through a divorce. They, they both have a name and a story. And if I want to show mercy, I've got to get into the, the difficulty and the pain and the mess of that. You know, it's the, the, the person and the um, projects that we spend time with that, that needs uh, not just a meal, but needs loving eyes and uh, a hand on the shoulder, maybe a, a 30-second prayer. You know, it, mercy is, is intensely personal. And we know that because the Lord Jesus is personal. He didn't just kind of, you know, throw some salvation tickets from heaven and say, jump on board. He disrobed himself of all that glory and came down and became a human being, became a helpless child, lived in relative, um, you know, obscurity for 30 years, and then spent three, three years teaching and suffering and then dying in our place. I mean, this, this is, if anybody knows that mercy is for people, it's the Lord Jesus. He embraced so much humility and hardship for Peter and James and John and Ron and Jonathan, mm. he knows mercy has a name. Yes. And he calls his sheep and they hear his voice and, and he knows our name. It, mercy, we get this from the Lord Jesus. It's so sweet. It's so touching. It's so real. It's so personal. So I, I wanted to just challenge a bit this kind of idea of using mercy and justice to feel good about yourself or to, and, and to let's remember where this comes from and who it's for. Purity in an age of self-expression. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, how is this related to the concept of of inner purity, or what? It, what is it? How is it you're approaching this particular one? Well, let me just go general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So purity has fallen on hard times, also, and there are some good reasons for that. The purity culture in which um, if you remain sexually pure before you get married, um, you're seen as good. If you make a mistake in this area, you're seen as bad and kind of get the scarlet letter in religious communities. And so the purity culture today has been criticized for its legalism and its uh, inflexibility and really uh, particularly treating women in a... um, disparaging and kind of utilitarian way. Um, So I wanted to think more robustly about what purity is about, and there's kind of an inner and an outer purity, and what I just described would be like the outer purity. It's the keeping the moral rules, the sexual morals. Um, Your conduct looks good on the outside, and therefore you accept it. But there's also today an inner purity, be true to myself, um, you know, to their own self be true. Uh, you know, you find your truth. 
um, a kind of allegiance to self, um, not to any outward standard of purity. And of course, that becomes very subjective uh, very quickly. The example I use in the book is of Ross Obrecht, who started the dark web site, The Silk Road. And he was principally believed and studied philosophy in the you know, autonomy of the self and in the um, total freedom. And so he applied it to this uh, business venture, The Silk Road. Of course, on this dark web, uh, there was uh, I think human trafficking, uh, gun sales, um, opportunities to hire, to, to, to kill people, uh, certainly plenty of drugs, a whole host of things that are very bad for society, whether you're a Christian or not. And yet it was the outworking of this kind of libertarian, uh, beholden to the self, um, total commitment to freedom of the individual. And so that inner purity, and he was consistent with that idea. I mean, he took it all the way to the mat and he went in prison for it. Um, it's obviously uh, not good for society. So inner purity and outer purity, religious purity or secular purity, if you will, or individual purity, both have problems. And so as we think about what does it mean to be pure in heart, um, we we need to find a better definition of purity. Yes. And uh, I think what, what the Lord is, is, uh, is driving at here is both purity of heart and purity of action. And um, the, the, the problem with that is that it's impossible to get a pure heart on your own. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the sullied motives, you know, even some of our best actions, often we walk away wondering, did I make an impression? How did they see me? Yes. Um, was, was, I, was I notable? Um, it, it, there's even a bit of pride attached to some of our best actions. And so pure heart is hard to come by. Um, and so as we think about blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they shall see God, the hope, uh, is seeing God. And, and in fact, these promises at the end, they're breaking in now. So I can see God. When I look at Christ, I see the, the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us. And when I look in his face and I trust his face and I trust who he is and what he's done, um, I see God, and I am satisfied, and I am cleansed and forgiven and given a pure standing before God, and, a, and then he continues to purify us, right. not just uh, internally, but externally. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to deal with some of the broken views of purity and then get us to, to look at oh, the Lord who... I need to break in. in yeah. We could take this break. Look at the Lord. <laughs> Welcome back to the uh, final segment of Amplify, just about 20 minutes, a little bit uh, less than that. Our guest is Jonathan Dodson. Type, title of this book is R. Good crisis written before the uh, pandemic so uh, but it has applications to it it's, it's about overcoming moral chaos with the beatitudes um, eternal struggle that uh, we have two more beatitudes that we want to deal with the last two dealing with uh, peace and persecution but I just have to add something 
it's uh, personal my my point personal preference that uh, uh, Jonathan points out that um, we can see God through nature and uh, he writes nature announces his glory which is the radiant sum of his perfect attributes and then he has this this quote from theologian Louis Burkhoff uh, and I put uh, asterisk next to it, not only underline it, but it's it's simple, but it's so rich. Uh, he describes God's immensity as, quote, that perfection of the divine being that transcends all spatial limitations. You need to think about that. You need to experience it in your mind, in your heart, that Perfection of the divine being that transcends all spatial limitations. And then Jonathan writes, Unfortunately, this doctrine is infrequently taught or discussed, and yet it is one of the most urgent in the age of the big me. So again, with, with 20 minutes left, there's so much more we need to talk about. Uh, that's, why, that's why you need to get a copy of the book, Our Good <laughs> Crisis, that has so much more in it, even when we talk about this this long peacemaking in an age of of outrage tell us a little bit jonathan about the um culture of fragility that we live in and and why and how is our culture so fragile yes yeah, so there you know we all like peacemaking uh as an ideal but when it comes to the friction rejection difference of opinion or offense, uh, very, very often peacemaking goes out the door. And so I'm trying to think, assess why is it so hard in our time? And that there are two cultures, a culture of fragility and a culture of outrage. Um, the culture of fragility is, um, it's interesting, there's a study done by Jonathan Haidt and uh, Lukianoff, a psychologist in uh, they, they uh, it's called the coddling of the American mind, and they document this uh, trend on campuses across the United States, but we're seeing it kind of globally and certainly on social media. And the trend is this. Anything that I find offensive, any ideas that I find disagreeable, are potentially harmful. So I don't just brand them or categorize them as wrong, but as potentially harmful or personally doing personal violence to me. So, example, um, there have been numerous cases where a professor is invited to speak at a university and then a student body uh, or group protests and runs them off and they don't actually lecture. Or an email by a university president is taken out of context and then um, perhaps for uh, racial reasons or um, personal reasons or whatever uh, that they, they I mean in some cases they have lost their job over the outrage but the outrage comes from a place of fragility and so basically if there's any kind of teaching that I find incompatible with my own personal worldview it's uh, harmful so that's a put this in this fragile state in which it's very hard to have conversations with people who oppose us and, of course, the, the sad thing is is that this is what the liberal arts are for. This is why the university was created, so that you could have the mutual exchange of differing ideas and be sharpened in your mind and, edu and educated about the world we live in. But there's this radical kind of 
fragile uh, culture of harm, uh, safetyism is, is the term they give to it. At, at all costs, I want to be safe, and so I'm going to protect myself from anything that would uh, challenge the self, that would um, challenge my own beliefs. So that's the culture of fragility. You can imagine that it's very hard to have a civil conversation with someone who's prone to withdraw and says that your ideas are harmful. On the other end, you have the culture of outrage. And the outrage is you don't withdraw, you just turn up the heat, you turn up the volume. And you, there's the vitriol and there's um, hate speech and there's, you know, and both the right and the left uh, do both of these things. It's not partisan. Um, and so, man, we want to be people of peace. We want to enjoy contentment and uh, have a joyful uh, peaceful life, it's very difficult when you have these polarizing cultures and relationships uh, to, to actually um, have peace. Yes. So um, I, I'm, I look at this at kind of a relationship level. Basically, when I thought about this beatitude, I thought to myself, who are the peacemakers in my life? You know, who are the models that I can look to that are peacemakers? A peacemaker is going to make peace, and in order to make peace, you have to work through conflict. And I had the hardest time thinking of people that I would go, this person is a great peacemaker. They, they walk into conflict humbly. They listen to other person's point of view. They weigh it. They're thoughtful. Anyway, so I was personally challenged to be more like this. I had a difficult finding uh, models of this. And yet Jesus says, you know, blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called the sons of God. Well, the promise attached to this, as I thought about it, actually frees us to be, as Christians, the best peacemakers on the planet. Because as I walk into a relationship in which I might see it harmful or disagreeable, I'm not ultimately threatened by the person. Um, I'm not ultimately threatened by idea. And the reason is this. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm the beloved. Um, I am accepted loved for who I am with all my flaws, with all my bad theology, um, with all of my issues, I am unquestionably loved. And so if I live into that, if I believe that, that frees me to walk into a conflict and be wrong. I don't need to prove that I'm right. I'm right with God. Um, I don't need to be angry and to get you on my side. I can trust that that will happen in God's good timing with other people. That doesn't mean you back off your convictions. It doesn't mean you have, you know, healthy debate. But I don't have to be fragile, and I don't have to have outrage. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to withdraw, because I have a settled place of acceptance and worth, and I can walk into a conflict humbly and look to learn, as well as communicate what I believe to be right and, and be charitable. And, and both, both uh, these ends of the fragility and ours, there's not charity you know, there's not love, there's not patience. And of all people on the planet, Christians should be exuding patience and charity and love, especially in conflict. We're the sons and daughters of God. Yes. What do we have to lose? <laughs> I, I, I want to jump back one second, just um, when we were talking about seeing God in nature, I was thinking about during the first hour of the program, I could hear birds singing in the background. Wherever you're at, <laughs> I could hear the birds singing. I wanted to comment yeah. on it, but I thought it would be too distracting. So I'm waiting until the end <laughs> to distract a little bit. But nevertheless, it was like a nice 
it was just had a nice feel to it because I love I love to hear birds sing also, especially when I'm when I'm home and and see experience God through nature. So, in this particular one, you you talk about Jesus's vision of peacemaking is is shalom. You you write that Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, which assumes the presence of conflict. He knew tension in relationships is God's appointed grace for moral and spiritual change. Therefore, the solution to outrage is not to retreat to the enclave of victim where we console ourselves with the many wrongs done to us. That fragile world is as dangerous as it is inaccurate. Nor do we stand our ground inflexibly spewing hot takes, unwilling to enter into true reflection and dialogue. Rather, the path forward is to embrace adversity with meekness, humbly, seeking change and peace. And I could read so much more, but let's, in closing the last uh, seven minutes or so we have, speak a little bit about um, the perse- by persecution in an age of, of comfort. Uh, can, I, can I follow up your comment about the birds? Oh, please. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> so we are outside of Austin. We... we rented an Airbnb to get away from some of the, we live in a condo and it's small quarters. We have three children, um, two teenagers and a nine-year-old. And um, my wife had this great idea, let's, let's get out into the country. So we, we came out to this house and the birds you were hearing, it, where it's just, uh, it's, um, the area is called Dripping Springs. It's beautiful. Oh. And uh, there's a red cardinal that visits every day, and there's a two skunks that come out every morning. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's been wonderful because uh, it's it's been a place like we talked about, you know, to to in the chaos, in the headlines, in the um, tech, to to slow down and create some space to listen to the Lord. And as I've gone for runs and walks, and I've observed these beautiful creatures. It's interesting how unflustered they are. <laughs> yes. You know, they are little examples to me. And, and I was struck by the, the thought that, you know, birds don't bark, they sing. Yes. You know, the, 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 there's the, the trees, very few trees weep. Many of them lift their arms in praise. It just, there's so much instruction uh, from nature uh, and from uh, creation. And it's been a wonderful place to to kind of push against <clears throat> the 24-hour news cycle, the anxiety of the changing headlines, and to just be still and know the Lord. And um, maybe, you know, I, I know I've shared love there between us for, for creation and for meeting the glory of the Lord around us. So perhaps that's an inspiration to some of the listeners this evening. Yes, and uh, my sister just bought this book on birds. So as we watch these birds in our backyard... Uh, we know what they're doing, and when I watched uh, Robin, I would see the, the way Robin would cock his his head, and I thought that he was listening for you know the grubs and stuff in the ground. But mm-hmm. he doesn't cock his head to listen; he cocks his head because he's looking for uh, one blade of grass to move. That's what he's looking for—just one little mm-hmm. bit of movement of grass, and he's he's got dinner, you know. So, well, we could go on and on. That would, that would be another program. Say a little bit about persecution in an age of comfort. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Well, many of us, we think about persecution. We think of uh, a persecuted church. We think of people lined up on the sandy shore in orange jumpsuits, you know, who are um, executed. Uh, we think of the Chinese underground church, uh, <clears throat> pastors in chains. Um, and that is all suffering and that is all persecution. However, there is a persecution in the West that is not physical, but emotional and verbal and spiritual. And in this beatitude, Jesus addresses those, the different types of, he does this rejoice, uh, <clears throat> blessed are you when you when all kinds of men revile against you and say things falsely. So there's kind of a verbal persecution that can happen. And today there's, a, you know, it's not popular to be a conservative Christian, you know, to someone that believes in the Bible um, <clears throat> and the righteousness that we talked about earlier, the uniqueness of Christ. And so sometimes that brings some kind of verbal um, persecution. Um, <clears throat> it may bring it uh, through the cooler talk or the criticism in the headlines or, you know, friends at work who hold different worldviews. Um, but it, it also uh, can come in kind of this insidious kind of pretty persecution and it and that is in is in all the comfort that we have uh, that we have air-conditioned cars we have you know people deliver food to us we wake up and change the climate in our homes we have uh, machines that do our dishes I mean we live in a culture of gratuitous comfort and so anytime uh, we brush up against inconvenience like <laughs> We're out of toilet paper, you know, whatever. Yeah, it right. becomes, you know, we can get bent out of shape. Is it any wonder that we're not willing to persevere or take the difficult stance in our society um, regarding the uniqueness of Jesus and his righteous teachings when we are buffeted by comfort all day long? So um, I'm trying to make the case in this chapter that Yes, there are physical persecutions in the world that perhaps are, are certainly not as intense as what we experience here in the United States, but there are other forms, and some of them are so seductive that we don't realize it. Um, and, and perhaps we have um, refused the cost of discipleship in following Jesus and therefore are losing out in a brighter witness, um, a deeper life, a source of uh, contentment and joy that we just can't find when we live under the the uh, the spell of a culture of comfort, and therefore we're further from Jesus. Yes. So um, I'm trying to make the case: there is persecution. Let's embrace it as we follow our Lord. We do have a Lord with scars. Let's follow Him wherever He leads, and be true to Him, and trust Him with the results. Of course, there's that that comes from Satan, and you alluded to that. And you're right, Satan mm -hmm. has declared an attack on God's people, seeking to subvert faithfulness to Jesus through the ruse of distraction. Under his influence, we are tempted to compromise holiness for the thrills of popular culture. We would rather serve than, than be served. And... Um, Jesus uses, you write, three different terms to describe this persecution. Revile, persecute, 
and speak falsely. The first translated revile means to find fault as a way of shaming to demean. This form of persecution is emotional in nature and is intended to belittle. The second word translated persecute means to harass because of one's beliefs. It is used in the context of laying hands on a person, imprisonment, and murder. It's a physical, it is physical in nature. The third phrase to speak all kinds of evil falsely is clearly more verbal. And then let me, let me read this last quote from your book. While we can't rule out physical persecution in the West, we usually face a persecution that is emotional and psychological. Cultural critic and Christian apologist Ken Myers said this suffering, quote, may be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. The challenge of following Jesus amidst comfort is just the tip of the iceberg. Convenience has an anesthetizing, I'm say it for me, anesthetizing, <laughs> there it is. There you go. Effect that leaves us unaware of less visible oppression. Our guest this evening has been Jonathan Dobson. The title is Our Good Crisis. And Jonathan, I didn't know you were away with your family now. And you came and spent two hours on this program. Well, well, we're also doing some work. It's not all play, but okay. Um, all I, right. I have permission. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much, and I hope that uh, we have an opportunity to do something together again in the future. And God bless you and your family during this time you have together. Thank you very much. Thank you for being You're such welcome. a generous host. I've You're enjoyed welcome. Our time. All right. Bye now. Bye. Um, so, um, there's so much, uh, to say. Let me just, let me just quote, uh, from, uh, part of, uh, the book. Uh, he writes, the way into the mystical, inebriating love of Christ is not through moral perfection, but humble reflection. It is by acknowledging our need, not announcing our plenty, that, we gain access to the sun. Isaiah said it well, quote, but to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word, close quote. Will you tremble at Christ's holy character inscribed in these sayings? Will you reach out not ultimately for virtue, but for help? Then salvation will come and righteousness with it. Christ will answer our cry every time. I repeat it. Christ will answer our cry every time. His face does not cease to shine, nor his mercies tarnish. They are new every morning. Each beatitude inspires and challenges us at once. Together they beckon us to a future garden where loving will be like walking and righteousness falls like rain. Until then, we must see our sin and evil through the eyes of our suffering Savior, where the comfort of heaven overlaps the sufferings of death. Take heart and keep your eyes on Christ. Dig in and walk in his ways. Endure, for reward is coming. See Christ with the eyes of faith 
and his glory will become visible to those around you. Droplets of his beauty will roll off of us, causing goodness to spring up around us. When we do this together, we nourish the world with Jesus' coherent and fruitful moral vision. When we're absorbed with Christ, the Spirit puts the future on display. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.